This is Episode 7, Leadership and Intelligence, with Private Sector Intelligence Leader, Angela Lewis. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Welcome back, everyone, to the Business of Intelligence podcast. And Michael, good to see you and happy holidays, my friend. Hey, great to see you, Ryan. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Yeah, so we recorded episode seven today, Leadership and Intelligence with Angela Lewis. But before we sort of kick that off, I was just curious, doing anything for the holidays or what do you have planned? You know, I I think this is going to be relatively low key. Uh, We're still in the unpacking phase thanks to the global supply chain slowdown. We only got our (laughs) furniture from Europe uh, about three weeks ago. So I think by Christmas Day, the house should be semi-organized and we'll probably just take a couple of days to hang out with uh, local friends and family, maybe shoot up to New York, TBD. But uh, how about you? Yeah, sounds good. If you guys do go to New York, obviously, the I feel like we're having deja vu again with Omicron, the Omicron variants and sort of COVID putting a damper on the holidays again. But yeah, low key as well. Spent some time with some family, you know, spent some time around the Chicago area and, and just kind of relax and try to unplug and uncharge and hopefully not get the Omicron variants. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Like, I, yeah, I was just thinking, I haven't been to New York since uh, late January, early February, 2019, when everything happened or 2020, I'm sorry, get my ears mixed up. Yeah. It's been a while. So I definitely got to get back. Yeah. I'm, I'm scheduled to go in January. I think we've talked about this, you know, the variants obviously is hitting New York really hard right now. So it'll be interesting to see if, there's still going to be events and things are going to be open or if everything's going to be shut down again, but you know, this is our reality now and who knows for how long. So having said that we had a great episode with our good friend, Angela Lewis. And the ironic thing is here, I feel like it was meant to be, and we've come full circle as you had said, because when you first started thinking about entering the private sector, I think Angela was the first person that you actually connected with. And you talk a little bit about that on the podcast, but it was almost as if this uh, episode was meant to be. So what are your uh, initial thoughts or just sort of top of mind takeaways from what we just recorded? I think it's a very solid episode. It gives really great detail into what it takes to develop a great intelligence program and intelligence professionals with a heavy emphasis on the leadership aspect, which uh, obviously Angie brings a lot to the table there. Yeah. I mean, for everyone listening, this particular episode, as we mentioned, is focused on leadership and intelligence. And I think she makes a great argument about how intelligence practitioners are actually positioned to be leaders and are leaders. A lot of great tactics, a lot of great advice for everyone listening to sort of operationalize. And yeah, I thought it was a wonderful episode. And she's obviously somebody that I think a lot of people look up to and would love to work for. So it was great to sort of get her insights in the in terms of how she leads teams and, and looks at teams. So I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but for everyone listening, it's 
December 21st, 2021. So we're obviously just a few days before Christmas. We've got New Year's coming up as well. So I think, you know, it's safe to say on both of our behalves that thanks to everyone for a great year in terms of listening to the business of intelligence. Thanks for all of your advice. Thanks for all the feedback. We, we sincerely appreciate it. But more importantly, I hope everyone really enjoys their holidays and, and stay safe out there. We'll be thinking about everyone. So having said that, should I go ahead and just give some background on Angie and then we'll roll right into it? Yeah, yeah. Just before that, just want to echo what you said. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being so supportive. And we look forward to kicking out even more content in 2022. All right. Sounds good. So let's give everyone some context here around Angie. So Angela Lewis is a PhD candidate in global leadership and change at Pepperdine University, where her dissertation focuses on applying systems theory to the building and leveraging of intelligence teams in the private sector. So really interesting. She holds a master's degree in international relations from American University and a bachelor's in international affairs and political science from the University of Cincinnati. Prior to joining the private sector, Angie served as a senior targeting officer in the CIA's Director of Operations, excuse me, including serving two tours abroad in Central Europe and in the Middle East. She currently manages the global intelligence and threat analysis team at the Walt Disney Company, which is tasked with understanding how geopolitical events could impact the company's various lines of business. So happy new year, everyone. We'll see you in 2022 and enjoy episode seven with Angela Lewis. Thanks. Take care, everyone. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Business of Intelligence podcast. And Angie, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We really appreciate you being on. I know we wanted to have you on from the very beginning. I mean, we've known you for a few years. We've been following, I think, some of your posts on LinkedIn We've been following your career a little bit. And Mike, I think, was Angie the first one that you actually reached out to when you thought about transitioning to the private sector? Is that right? Yes, yes. Actually, I remember it well. My wife and I were talking about it recently. It was uh, mid-2018. You know, I knew I wanted to make a change. And for whatever reason, I was just looking through people's profiles on LinkedIn, trying to figure out who to connect with. And... I was really interested by Angie's profile. I knew she had some government background and took a chance, sent her a LinkedIn message. She responded. And I always remember, joke around, because I had it on speaker because I didn't have a great connection in Germany. And my wife was walking out of the room and she was just so impressed because we we're talking about how Angie was juggling, I think, her daughter's tennis. She had started her education. She was doing stuff at Disney. She was doing stuff for ARIP and different organizations. And it was just from the get-go, I was very impressed to see how she can manage so many different things and also make time for people. So, you know, I'm definitely always grateful. And, you know, ironically, she was the person who said, you know, there's this thing, ARIP, out there. And there's this guy, Ryan's military guy. So, you know, it's kind of cool that we're all full circle right now. So thanks, <laughs> No problem. No, I was so happy to connect. I love helping people out as they try to kind of figure out what's next and make those transitions. Yeah. So, Michael, what you're saying is cyber stalking works then. That's what <laughs> you're saying, essentially, right? <laughs> yes, it depends, I guess. <laughs> and, and by the way, Angie, we heard your friends call you Angie. And so we thought maybe we would try to get away with that today. So I hope that's OK with you. <laughs> I don't mind at all. My friends do call me Angie. Angela's on my birth certificate, but Angie's what it is. 
Awesome. So listen, we have so much to talk about. We're really excited to have you. You know, I want to start with the educational background because we're just fascinated by this. I know there's so many people in the in the private sector intelligence industry that are interested as well. So you're a PhD candidate in global leadership and change at Pepperdine University. And I know your dissertation looks at the building and leveraging Intel teams in the private sector. So I mean, this is so impressive. I mean, you you have a background in the Central Intelligence Agency. You have a master's degree. You work for arguably the biggest brand in the world, if not the biggest brand in the world, certainly one of the top few biggest brands. So why the PhD and, and why specifically global leadership? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've all seen and, and really felt the importance of good leadership. And as the world becomes sort of increasingly interconnected and the ability to lead across cultures is becoming all the more valuable. And when we look at that business context, there's a significant intersection between global leadership and intelligence. It's hard to miss that increasing complexity in the global environment. Look at the disruptions and the rapid changes and the increased pressures. So in an effort to maintain a strategic advantage, business leaders are starting to increasingly leverage those geopolitically focused strategic intel teams to accurately and concisely sort of convey or synthesize those large quantities of data to help support those significant high-level business decisions. It's becoming even more important at that intersection, I think, to help those decisions, good decisions. And so you look at global leadership and you see the impact that it has, and then you look at intelligence and you see the potential impact that it can have. And you put those two together and you have you know, quite the combination. Yeah, I love that. I think it was Paul Colby that wrote or talked about the fact that you know, business leaders have always had access to vast quantities of information, but now they're actually demanding actual intelligence to make better decisions to help navigate this insane world that we're living in. So we'll definitely talk more about the intersection of intelligence and leadership. But let me just ask a quick follow up. I mean, I know everyone that's listening and that knows you is dying to know. And I don't know if you can share anything or not, but do you have any initial insights or key findings from your, your dissertation or just, you know, key insights from the course of your studies thus far? Yeah. So you guys are brave men asking a PhD candidate about their dissertation. We should be here all day. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I'll try to make it a little bit short. So in some ways, my initial findings are not too shocking. What I did with my dissertation was to really look out at the private sector intel um, field and at individual teams from a systems theory lens. So I used the McKinsey 7S framework to sort of try to understand that bigger picture when it comes to these types of teams. What leadership styles work and maybe which ones don't? Is there an optimal structure? You know, what processes or procedures are key to their success? What skills are critical to have on these teams? I basically looked at these teams as open systems, which operate within larger systems. And one key element of systems theory is equifinality. It's the concept that there are a million different ways to reach an optimal result. But the crucial factor is that all the elements within that system are in alignment. So, for example, if an organization doesn't hire the right people or perhaps they don't trust their people, they'll often wind up implementing a lot of processes and procedures that try to force whoever they have in those roles to do what it is they want them to do. And in reality, from a leadership perspective, engaging in autonomy, supportive leadership is what leads to greater job satisfaction and increased productivity. So in a situation like this, the system's out of alignment. 
it's skewed towards process and procedure over proper staffing and development. A similar thing happens when you see an organization that dives heavily into structure. Uh, This is, of course, how bureaucracies are built. Many times in the absence of adequately trained personnel or properly designed strategy, an organization will bring in a new leader to fix the problem, which is another, you know, another different issue. But there's also a lack of strategy sometimes. A lot of folks feel like there's too much potential or sorry, there's so much potential in the field, but the capability on the Intel team is buried under hierarchy. So that's a structure problem or else they're a solution in search of a problem where their requirements or objectives are murky at best. So understanding these challenges, I think, are critical to building an effective team and being able to leverage everyone's strengths. But at the end of the day, my case study revealed that there's a lot of overlap, dare I say alignment, uh, between what are perceived as <laughs> effective leadership strategies, say autonomy, supportive leadership, and the shared values on the team, like being self-motivated or going above and beyond or having a creative and innovative work environment and having a positive and inclusive work culture. There's also a lot of alignment between structure, which is often, though not always, organized by geopolitical region, for example, and then the skills that are seen as critical to employ on one of these teams, which tend to be subject matter expertise in a geopolitical region or an interest in geopolitics. So while there's some general alignment between these elements, the key is to bring all of the pieces into alignment. And like I said, there's no one right answer. It's really about, and we all know this, knowing your own business and what works best for that business. This is really fascinating. First of all, I'm going to have to Google the word equifinality. That's a first <laughs> for me. <laughs> but I mean, there's so many things that resonated in terms of what you said. And, and one is just if you get your system out of sorts. And I know I've ran into that problem. I've many of the failures that I've had, I think, relate to having my systems out of sorts where the people that were on our team didn't necessarily align properly with our vision and strategy, which I know we're going to talk about. I'm a very process-driven person. And I've it's a hard lesson that I've learned over the years to sort of strike the right balance between process and people, which we'll dive into as well some really good stuff. And I think it segues nicely into just the overarching theme of leadership development. So let's dive into that just a little bit more. You had a great quote, an amazing quote, actually, when we talked earlier, and I just want to run this by you and get your thoughts on this. So during one of our previous discussions, you said, I decided to be the leader I never had. Can you tell us what that means to you? Yeah. So I know at first glance, it sounds like I'm saying I never had a leader that I wanted to emulate. (laughs) And I'm not saying that at all. Um, That's not exactly true. I had some fabulous leaders and some really incredible mentors that I respect to the nth degree and that I would follow to the ends of the earth. What that does mean, though, is that there were some crucial times in my career that I didn't feel like I had a leader who really cared about me as an individual and who was really invested and interested in sponsoring me and helping me to reach my goals. And as a young professional in particular, I desperately wanted someone to show me the ropes and really invest in me. And the the times that I felt like I needed that the most were often the times when I ended up with the worst bosses, which perhaps is its own teaching point, obviously. So I think that we can all recognize that at different points in our career, we need different things. You know, early on, we often want a little bit more guidance. Later on, we often need a boss who's just going to give us some guardrails and set us free. So I kind of wanted to be that leader for my people, whatever that might be, really kind of understanding what they needed at that point in their career and what their objectives were. So that's not to say that my direct reports aren't responsible for their own careers or identifying their interests, but I feel like it's my responsibility to be their advocate and their sponsor. 
their champion, if you will, to really help them to identify the skills that they need to get to the next level and then to be relentless a little bit (laughs) in highlighting when um, they're really ready to take that next step. Angie, why do you think intelligence practitioners make good leaders and what's the connection there that we can leverage? Yeah. So when I mentioned the global business context at the outset, I talked about, you know, global leaders kind of increasingly leveraging those geopolitically focused strategic intel teams to, you know, accurately and concisely convey and synthesize those large quantities of data to really support those high level business decisions. But given this context, geopolitically focused strategic kind of intel teams have the potential to have an outsized impact on that global business decision-making, you know, given their experience in understanding decision-making frameworks and distilling vast amounts of information, vetting and establishing trusted sources, understanding what's useful and relevant content, mining different resources for significant insights, Intel professionals are really well positioned to evolve into those future leaders. So we tend to understand what information is important to make good decisions and how to find it and how to look at the bigger picture and understand that impact and the implications of those decisions. So it's also a very customer service oriented field. Everything we're doing is in service of someone else to help a decision maker to make better decisions. So I would argue that leadership should also be very service oriented. I've heard it said that leadership is not about being in charge, but taking care of those in your charge. So I would also argue that investing in leadership development for Intel professionals is a really important step in an organization's long-term operational strategy. I just want everyone who's listening to just take note of what Angie just said and, and think about how you can operationalize some of the things that she just said. So that's all I wanted to say. Let that sink in what she just said, because I think it's pretty profound and it's something that we could all use. No, no, I couldn't agree more, you know, especially going to customer service mentality. That's just something that always resonates that uh, I think it's imperative and, you know, kind of tied to that. It's always a tough thing. I think a lot of intelligence professionals deal with Angie. If you had to choose, would you rather be perceived within your organization as a great business leader or a great practitioner? And I guess why and and how do you strike a balance between those two? Well, you know, I really don't want to choose. (laughs) And to be honest, I think they're both incredibly important. Oftentimes, the thing is, they're so intertwined that I'm not even sure that a choice is actually necessary. For example, we've talked about leadership development for Intel professionals And there are a number of leaders out there that are the ones that are making those decisions and they're using those critical thinking skills and they've identified trusted sources of data. They're effectively practitioners in leadership roles. So they're making those business decisions. And on the flip side, I look at my analysts on my team and I see great leaders, even if they don't have the title that most leaders would have. But they're thoughtful and intelligent and resourceful. When they propose a way forward, I trust it. So I think that most people would see them as great practitioners, but I would also argue that they are and really have the potential to be great business leaders. So in that sense, I think in many ways to be a great leader, you also kind of need to be a pretty good practitioner. And that's not to say that, you know, you're in the weeds doing Intel analysis on a daily basis, but you're using those critical thinking skills and that customer service orientation. So in effect, you're kind of both. (laughs) So maybe you don't have to choose. Great point. Yeah. So maybe that was a trick question because I love your answer of not having to choose. I couldn't agree more. One of the things we talk about quite a bit and try to promote, I think, is identity amongst our practitioner community. Just the fact that you don't have to be stuck in this one identity that you are an analyst or you are an intelligence advisor. 
we're trying to say that you're so much more. I mean, I think you're a leader first, regardless of where you fall within your sort of chain of command, if you will. So I think that's great feedback and, and great perspective. One of the other things that really struck me that you said was you want to be a great champion and advocate for your teammates and for the, the folks that are on your team and working for you. So it makes me think of cultivating a great team culture. So do you have any tips that you could share with us and with everyone listening that you would use to cultivate a great team culture so that everyone's happy and thriving? Yeah. So I mentioned autonomy, supportive leadership earlier, and I think that's probably the number one thing that I would advocate for leaders to engage in with their intelligence professionals. What that means is that people who are bright and highly motivated like to have ownership over their work to the extent that it's possible. Um, They like to make decisions in their professional lives and honestly, who doesn't in their personal lives too, that are meaningful and effective. So creating an environment wherein a professional is able to handle a project from start to finish, to choose its direction, to own its outcome is powerful for their development and sustained motivation. Autonomy is actually one of the three pillars of self-determination theory, which argues that people, in order for people to feel, I guess, fulfilled and motivated in their lives and in their careers, they need autonomy and they also need competence and relatedness. So generally, if you have a challenge, whether it's with a direct report or even in your own career, it's usually in one of these three arenas. Sometimes it's an issue that autonomy is lacking and the outcome doesn't have any significance. We see this a lot when intel assessments become a little bit of a box checking exercise rather than truly helping decision makers to you know make better decisions. Sometimes it's a feeling of incompetence. Either you don't know what you're doing or you need more training or guidance and you simply need some additional resources. And sometimes you're not equipped to do the job at hand. And then other times it's relatedness. So it's your role in the bigger picture. Is it clear or your work environment or maybe in that includes your relationships with others around you aren't where you'd like them to be. So it's important that leaders keep an eye on these elements, both for themselves, but also for the individuals on their teams. And of course, you don't want to make an assessment about what's lacking or what's wrong in, an, in a vacuum. You know, you want that input from your team, but really being able to kind of use this as a framework to see kind of what's not working or maybe what is and really capitalize on that can be really helpful to building a really great culture. Yeah. One quick follow-up to that. So I love what you're saying about the autonomy. I think that's right. I mean, I know I would, I feel that myself. I just, I value that the most in terms of what I want from my manager and my boss. What would you say to somebody who says, okay, I'm going to give my teammates autonomy, ownership, accountability, et cetera. But then along the way, they need a little help or you see that maybe they're going down the wrong path. So how do you How do you sort of reconcile that? And how would you advise a manager to help reconcile that? Well, I think it goes back to those guardrails, right? So, you know, people don't want to operate in a vacuum because that while you want that autonomy that says, hey, I have ownership over this, you also want to have that relatedness. So you're working within an environment that is, you know, positive and engaging and everybody sort of is on the same page. So, you know, providing some input into the process doesn't mean that you're taking it away from them completely. And so it's important to kind of characterize it in that way, you know, hey, giving a couple guidance, you know, here's a couple guardrails, hey, let's try to shift gears on this a little bit, but still letting them own that. I think that's kind of, you know, if it's not mission critical, obviously, there are situations where, you know, a leader is going to have to step in and say, okay, we're scrapping this, we're changing directions, 
And that happens. But I think it's when you are able to create a situation where there are more pluses than minuses that you have that positive organizational culture. And I think that people understand too, like, hey, you know what, every now and then we're going to get some new inputs into the system that says that we have to change directions. And that's okay. It's the overall feeling of having that autonomy or understanding that your, your leadership trusts you in a sense to kind of make good choices and figure out the right direction. Uh, great points, Angie. And, you know, for those listening out there, we're talking about autonomy supported leadership. Going a level below that, what's your definition of what makes a, a good intelligence practitioner? Whew. Well, <laughs> so about three years ago, I wrote an article on this very topic and I focused mostly on soft skills. So intellectual curiosity, communication skills, collaboration, flexibility, those kinds of things. And I think these are still mostly true. But according to my dissertation, the key skills that were mentioned most as critical in the field were analytic skills, which, of course, comes as no surprise. But this includes critical thinking, synthesizing, contextualizing information, things like that. Relationship building and networking was another one. And then effective communication skills. And then subject matter expertise and business acumen, i.e. understanding your business, actually rounded out the top five. So when I look at what makes for a you know good intelligence analyst, a successful private sector intel professional, if you will, those are kind of the things that I would look at. I'll just ask a quick follow-up. Is there anything that's changed for you over the past couple of years in terms of what makes a good intel practitioner or have those things just remained steady? I think those have stayed mostly the same, but I think that the focus on business acumen and really understanding your business is something that has become increasingly important, or maybe I have noticed the increasing importance in it as I've developed in my career. That's really the concept of knowing your consumer, understanding what it is that they need that really helps to guide your work on a regular basis. And so I think that's something that anybody can learn. So it's not something that you you come in to a new job with that skill set already in place. Like a lot of times you develop that over time. One thing I just wanted to add for our listeners is, uh, you know, something that, that you brought up to me, Angie, three years ago now is that, you know, for people that are looking to make the transition into the field or even people who have been in one private sector or corporate program for a while and looking to move to a new, another program, you know, one thing that you always gave me that fit in this was just to make sure, you know, you really have to have an open mind and, it's good to bring your experience and knowledge with you, but be able to adapt to the new one because, you know, everywhere you go is going to be different. So, you know, that's something I just want to point out that I think, you know, you can't go into a situation saying, well, I did so much great things in this one particular environment that I'm going to carry it now. So that's just something that I want to point out that uh, I think is a great piece of knowledge you passed on. Absolutely. I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So listen, why don't we segue just a little bit and talk about the challenges of building a team? Because over the last couple of years, I've read, you know, a lot of the things that you've written, some posts on LinkedIn, and it's become apparent to me that you know the mechanics of building a good team. And I thought we'd start with structure and headcount, which is, you know, always two challenges at the top of the list for any private sector Intel team. And, you know, speaking of headcount, Listen, there's a a wide range and spectrum, if you will, of the size of teams across the private sector. There are some very, very large teams, but we know that there's many organizations out there that just have a handful of folks working and, you know, that can create some challenges. So the question is, do you think we're losing really talented people in this field because they have this perception or there's a reality that there's no room to grow? 
Yeah, I, I actually do think we're losing some of the great talent. And I'd have to caveat, obviously, by saying there's little room to grow in this particular field. So, you know, global security as a whole, what have you, there's a lot of different elements within that. Most companies seem to have a very specific vision for what an intelligence team does and does not do and how those capabilities should be leveraged. So I see a lot of entry-level analyst roles, and then I see some senior analyst roles, and then there's a manager or even a director of, of analysts. But it's simple math that as you go up that hierarchy, there are going to be fewer jobs available for the number of talented people that are in that field. So most organizations are also not very good at establishing a SME career path that allows for career growth as an expert. And there's no really well-defined career path for Intel analysts. So to be honest, those critical thinking skills and that, you know, that these Intel professionals are using and that they're so good at, these are exceptionally valuable in a wide array of roles and fields and can be leveraged outside of the field pretty easily and pretty readily. And so I think there are a lot of people that as they're looking for their next growth opportunity, they're kind of saying, okay, there's nothing for me here. So maybe I'm going to shift gears or maybe I'm going to leverage these skills somewhere else. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you solve for that? I mean, I guess that's the follow-up question. So you, let's say you have a super talented team, supremely talented, you want them to stay on board. How do you provide growth and opportunity for everyone and keep people happily engaged when promotion potential might be limited? So autonomy support is an obvious one. Allowing employees greater latitude to lead within their roles and to own projects is obviously one way to increase engagement. Also allowing employees the latitude to pursue some of their own interests on the job. So I know this sounds a little bit counterintuitive because we're all exceptionally busy, (laughs) but if we're hiring people who are intellectually curious, there are probably things that may not be immediately relevant to the job that could still help them to hone their skill sets that are valuable on the job. And that could actually wind up helping your team take a new direction. So examples might be learning a new language, learning coding, taking a cybersecurity certificate course, learning futures or foresight analysis, even taking a creative writing course. Also, some people in an an analyst roles may not necessarily want to be analysts for life. So there are skills that they can be developing that might help them for, you know, set them up for whatever their next role is. And while that, again, seems a little bit counterintuitive to invest in an employee with the understanding that they're probably going to leave you and take that skill set elsewhere, it also makes them feel a little bit more engaged and more productive and more valued on the team and as a member, you know, on your team. And so that's going to help them to grow and develop, and maybe they'll become a valuable member of another team within your organization. Also, team culture, we talked about this, can do a lot to maintain engagement by suboptimal promotion potential. It's hard to quantify a positive organizational culture, but I think we all know that it's incredibly valuable. You know, people like to work with people that they enjoy working with, and they'll stick around for that, especially when you have a very kind of team-oriented culture. And then finally, recognition. Know your employees and know what types of recognition are meaningful to them. Some people just want a simple thank you, and they like to fly beneath the radar, but they want to be recognized that, hey, they did something, they were you know, doing some hard work, and it was well-received. So maybe hoping for a monetary recognition, no shame there. You know, others want a huge parade and banners and cookies. I mean, not all of it is practical, but understanding your team and what amounts to meaningful recognition is going to go a long way in lieu of promotions. If any of my bosses are listening, I love monetary recognition. (laughs) So that that tactic sounds amazing. (laughs) No, in all seriousness, those are all wonderful points. Yeah. And I I just want to highlight too, uh, I think that's a particularly great point about 
having sometimes let people go to different parts of the organization. Like, uh, you know, personally, I don't want to see people leave Intel teams, but, you know, just going back to my finance days or the government, I mean, a lot of times you might have people who started out in the Intel side and went to different departments or organizations. And, you know, if they had a positive experience, they're more inclined to work with you. So it's, you know, it's kind of looking at long-term game of fixing things. Angie, something we've been asking our guests, we just had a very thoughtful discussion on it with James Gooding, which the episode just came out today. What's your take on the tension between security intelligence, if it exists, and you know, not just at uh, your organization, but other places that you might have benchmarked? What is it and how do we mitigate it? Yeah. So if you think about it, intelligence is all about being flexible and responsive to customer needs. It's kind of evolving with what's happening out there you know, in the quote unquote, real world. So security, on the other hand, requires a level of standardization. It's often tied to legal or safety regulations. And so geopolitical intelligence teams typically exist within a security structure. So there's a bit of a natural tension there between security and intelligence. You can standardize the general topics that go into a risk assessment, for example, but to be agile and responsive to the decision maker needs or their specific questions, you often have to be creative and resourceful. So your requirements are going to be a little bit different depending on the risk, the segment, the decision maker, the context, you know, all of those things. So it's not impossible for the two to coexist, but leaders in this space have to recognize and allow for the flexibility that an Intel team is going to need in order to be responsive to different consumers and their requirements, especially when you're trying to do it on a timely basis. And so through recognizing it, it means that your structure and your strategy, likely your leadership style, they're going to differ a little bit for an Intel team than perhaps for a standard security operations team. And again, like not putting you on the spot with your particular organization, but just looking at the industry as a whole, like where do you think ideally the intelligence function should fall under? And again, like- I love this. (laughs) (laughs) I love this question, actually. But I, you know, blue sky, you know, in an ideal world, I would put it under the strategy element of the business as close to the company's biggest decision makers as possible. That said, if it's going to fall within a security function, as many of them do, I would try to keep it as agnostic and independent as possible, reporting directly to the CSO or, you know, the leader of the security element. Oftentimes, structure is one of the most challenging things to alter in an organization. It's, you know, seen as sort of a pillar. It's, it's what holds a lot of things up. And the fact that organizations are so wedded to structure can indicate a misalignment sometimes, that perhaps the strategy isn't what it needs to be or too many bureaucratic layers have been added, those kinds of things. So in a blue sky, you know, ideal world, I would try to put it under strategy and very close to those business decision makers. Oh, that was a great answer. It's funny that you talk about structure. I think when I look across the private sector, I think structure is one of the most underrated elements, or I, I would say least talked about elements in terms of what's going to be a contributing factor to a team's success. Because if you don't have the right structure right off the bat, then you're automatically sort of in a hole, if you will. So I think we need to talk about that more. That's really interesting. I know it's really, really difficult to change, but Just going back to the original question, we don't ask that question. If there are any chief security officers listening, we're not asking that question to to sow chaos. We're we're asking that question to figure out how we can get better, how we can be more supportive of one another, amplify each other as a whole, because a lot of these teams do fall within a corporate security department. So I think it's a, a really good question to ask. So. Okay. One more quick follow-up question for me in terms of this section on the challenge of building a team. And I 
To be honest, I wish I would have learned this lesson from you about five years ago, but we've heard you talk about the linkage before between developing your strategy and developing your team. And I think there's a common mistake that a lot of us probably make in, in not linking those two properly. So can you expand on what that is and sort of how to fix that or address that challenge? Yeah, well, to be honest, I don't think I would have known this to share with you five years ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, so if you think about it, you know, we get our work done through our people, which means if you look at a longer term strategy for your organization, your people have to be a part of it. The skills, the knowledge, the experience that they bring to the table, those are all critical to an intelligence function. And so every time we have to rehire for the same role, we're losing institutional knowledge. And according to my research, as I mentioned earlier, one of the top five skills as as an intel professional is business acumen. So that typically refers, obviously, to the concept of knowing your business and knowing your audience, your consumer. Another one is relationship building. And so as your company evolves, so do the threats and challenges that it faces. And without that institutional knowledge, Intel professionals don't know the key players within the company. They don't know the decision-making frameworks. They don't know the organization's key concerns, where it's been, where it's headed. And it makes it a lot more challenging to anticipate those decision-maker needs. But without those relationships that have been built up over time, you know, being involved in the decision-making process is much more challenging as well. So in short, if you want the best possible intelligence to truly support your business, turnover undermines two of the most critical elements of an intelligence team. I was just pausing because I was really thinking about that. I think if we were all to do a SWOT analysis of our functions, one of the critical sort of opportunities or even threats is business continuity or the lack of business continuity within our teams. I've learned this lesson the hard way over the last few years. And I've also learned the hard lesson of maybe having a plan that I don't want to say it wasn't too ambitious, but it just didn't match up with the phenomenal skills and expertise that my team brought to the table. So I think syncing those a little bit more effectively is better in the long run. So I I appreciate the insights on that. I I think that's going to resonate with a lot of different people. All right. Let's ask a couple of more provocative questions. I always have fun with these right before we get to the rapid fire. So I'm mentally preparing you. We're coming up on the rapid fire, (laughs) which should be fun. But before we get to that, we love to challenge the status quo a little bit. And so I don't know if you caught our uh, one of our first episodes with Paul Colby, but one of the things he talked about was sort of the how it doesn't make sense to call private sector intelligence analysts analysts because it really doesn't do the job justice. There's so much more that goes into it. He was a big advocate for private sector intelligence advisor. There may be some other names. So the first question is, are we hurting ourselves in the private sector by calling ourselves analysts, just analysts? and creating a perception that we're nothing but analysts. So what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, an analyst in the private sector is really, a, I think it's a misnomer for most teams. Analysts are collecting information from a number of different sources. They're synthesizing it. They're validating it through other sources. They're making sure that it meets the requirements of the consumer. They're disseminating it. Some companies are, like you said, moving away from calling them analysts because they re- it really does put them in a box. In reality, they are advisors, they are consultants, they are investigators, they are collectors, they are collection management officers, they're validators. One individual will likely do the entire span of the intel cycle on a given day and much, much more. (laughs) You know, there'll be a consultant on the side of there being a wholesale, you know, full scale intel team. So, of course, this will differ from company to company, but 
I think that part of the challenge is that many companies have a very narrow view of intelligence and they really want it to reside solely in one domain. But there are some that are looking at leveraging Intel capabilities more creatively and allowing those teams to add greater value to the company from a security brand and reputational standpoint, and then also even looking at revenue generation. Yeah, thank you for your insights on that. I couldn't agree more. I think our friends, our mutual friends, Maria and Lewis, I won't, I won't say their last names because I didn't, didn't get their permission, but I think we need to figure this out. We really need to work on this. Arup, we all need to be thinking about this because I think we're doing ourselves a major disservice by keeping these roles in this box that we just sort of described. A follow-up on that one. What's your experience, Angie, been with, let's say, cognitive bias from, let's say, former military, former government, former law enforcement, who've been in different spectrums of what intel and intelligent analysts mean to them? Like how, you know, kind of tied to what we're just saying, like, what's your experience been and, and how do you deal with that? I think that's very common across the private sector. A lot of people are coming in and and a lot of times, you know, companies bring in somebody from, you name the three-letter organization or what have you, you know, and what they bring with them is their view of what intelligence is and how it operates. So someone who has a strong law enforcement background is really going to look at the kind of criminal intelligence side of things and what does it look like to build a case, you know, and they might be very, very good at investigative type intelligence, right? But maybe somebody who comes from a different three-letter organization that, you know, has focused more geopolitically or, you know, internationally, those kinds of things, they're going to have a very different mindset. So, you know, it can be a challenge, but really, you know, you have to, as an Intel professional, try to help them to see the bigger picture and what other capabilities exist. What else is out there? You know, how else might you be able to leverage intelligence for decision-making? And sometimes it requires, you know, helping someone to see things a little bit more creatively than maybe their their past experience was. Thanks. Great point. Yeah. And it's not going to be easy. We, we've had years, probably decades now, a couple of decades since 9-11 of legacy thinking of, so let's say, security professionals and practitioners viewing intelligence a certain way, viewing intelligence analysts a certain way. So it's not going to be easy, but I think it's something that we need to collectively work on in the private sector. So... Listen, in the spirit of change and innovation, what do you think is not working in our field right now, besides the fact that we use intelligence analysts, but what's not working and what do we need to change? What would maybe be one thing that's top of mind for you? So I think that we are hiring some absolutely phenomenal professionals into the field. The creativity and critical thinking that I have seen, they're absolutely capable of leading the way in business operations. That said, the business environment evolves quickly. And we need to evolve our leadership thinking just as quickly. So a lot of these teams have strong capabilities, but as I mentioned before, they're buried under layers of bureaucracies or they have to work through too many middlemen to get to consumers. So all of these layers dilute the intelligence and challenge our ability to build the necessary relationships with decision makers. So I think that would be getting rid of some of the silos and the layers would be sort of what I think needs to change. Okay. I cannot talk about this enough. I love what you just said. If you are a decision maker, if you are a chief security officer, if you are in some sort of leadership position out there and you're listening right now, to me, the ultimate sin is to not let your intelligence team connect directly with their consumers and their customers and key stakeholders. Intelligence is a participatory sport. We talk about it all the time. So yeah, I could not be more passionate about that. So thank you for for bringing that up. So, all right, let's have some fun, y'all. 
Michael, are we ready to do? I don't know why I just said y'all. I'm from the Midwest. I have no idea why I just said that, but um, I'm from Chicago. I don't know. Okay, let's have some fun. I really enjoy this part. Angie, we're going to do the rapid fire round. So hopefully you have some, some great answers for us, but Michael, we'll let you kick it off and then I'll close this out. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I'm excited to ask Angie these, considering where she works, because uh, it's one of my favorite places in the world. <laughs> Angie, what's your favorite place in the world? And, you know, as we said in different podcasts in the past, like, it can be anywhere. It could be simple or complex or work or personal. Where's your favorite place in the world? Well, I'm a travel buff, so I have a lot of them, but this is rapid fire. So uh, Morocco or Istanbul? Ooh, great answers. And if there was no limitation... What's your next bucket list location once we can uh, get things going again? Oof. So I really want to scuba dive in the Red Sea and in the Great Barrier Reef. So probably one of those two, but also the Maldives. Ooh. Wow, these are good ones. What's your favorite Disney movie of all time and why? <laughs> <laughs> um, all of them. No, okay, probably Aladdin. You know, I can show you the world, all that stuff. It speaks to my sense of adventure. Wow, great. And uh, I just jump in. Yeah, I just want to I'm interjecting myself here. Mine is the Lion King because my dog, she loved it. She would get so close to the TV and then she would get so scared. She would run up on the couch and try to hide behind me, which is very hard because she was not a small dog. So I I just love the Lion King. But on that note, my dog's name is Nala. So there is that. Oh, Oh, there we go. There we go. All right. (laughs) What's something you wish you could be good at? Oof playing tennis. So my daughter is a rock star on the tennis court. She's amazing. And I'll go out and warm her up before a tennis tournament, but she could absolutely wipe the court with me. Nice. Yeah, that's amazing. All right. So what book article or presentation should we all be reading or watching right now just to become better intelligence practitioners? My dissertation. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's not published yet. <laughs> no, I am a huge Simon Sinek fan. So all of his talks and his book, Leaders Eat Last, Also, there's a book called Collective Genius. It really helped me to see Intel Teams as creative, innovative organizations. Yeah, I love it. All right. Knowing what you know now, what piece of career advice would you give yourself if you were just starting out? Don't fear the big decisions. Trust yourself to make the best decision you can with the information you have. And then remember that you're resilient. If you find things don't turn out the way you expect, chart a new course and make another decision. The rightness or wrongness of our choices is often borne out in how we handle it after the decision is made. Yeah, I love that. I could have used that advice as well. Okay. Who is someone you admire and why? Okay. Well, there are a lot of them, to be honest. Um, (laughs) I like to fangirl, especially in the Intel field. So I'll stick with there. Daryl Blocker, he is one of my all-time favorite people and one of those leaders that I mentioned previously that is both a brilliant mentor and a great friend. Maria and Lewis, who we've talked about, they're my fellow PhD Intel nerds. We have regular Zoom meets just to nerd out about our studies. And they have just really helped me to flesh out so many of my thoughts and ideas on the field. And then Linda Reed, who is such a strong leader and has been so open to chatting and giving me guidance. I really appreciate her candor. She is such a straight shooter. And then OSAC's Bill Gannon. He's a, such a natural systems thinker. Okay, I'll stop there. <laughs> I can no, go on and on. 
No, it's great. We would not be where we are. We would not be who we are without our friends, mentors, those people that mean a lot to us. So it's a great way to just sort of give thanks and gratitude back to them. And by the way, Maria and Lewis, if you are listening to this episode, this is your open invitation to be on the Business of Intelligence podcast. We'd love to have you. So, all right. Last but not least, this is totally up to you. We wanted to give you sort of the last word. If you were to provide a call to action to everyone listening, any message that you want to share, what would that call to action be? Yeah. Find yourself at least one mentor and at least one champion. They can be the same person or they can be different people, but look for people who invest in you and your growth. It doesn't have to be just in the Intel field, though it can be. To me, mentors are people who are attuned to your interests and who you trust to tell you some hard truths who will help you grow and sometimes get out of your own way. Sponsors or champions are people who are attuned to your interests and goals and who will speak your name into a room full of opportunities. And if you're a leader, or honestly, even if you're not, (laughs) be a mentor and be a sponsor. This field has so much potential. And I really think it's going to be at its best when we're all invested in each other. Angie, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Where can people connect with you if you want them to? And then you mentioned the dissertation. When that is finished, are you going to be able to share that with the the broader community? Or how would we be able to sort of get our eyes on that? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, pretty easy to find me. <laughs> Not too too difficult to, to find. And then, yes, my dissertation, I'll probably, um, once it's done and defended and out there, it'll probably be on ProQuest. And I'm sure I will be posting a link to it at a minimum on LinkedIn, but you know, happy to have anyone and everyone read it. Excellent. Excellent. Best of luck. I know it's going to be amazing. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. We appreciate you taking the time right before the holidays. And for everyone else listening, please have a safe and enjoyable holidays. We hope you enjoy some you know, much earned time off with family and friends. And we look forward to talking to you soon. Bye, everyone. Take care, everybody. Happy holidays.